on this morning, I'd like us to go to Psalm 63. Psalm 63. And those of you who were at the retreat will know why. Title my message this morning Satisfied in the Finished Work of Christ. As remember that Brother Cody preached to us, being satisfied in God. And so, in God's sovereignty, He sought it best to have these messages and the Psalm of 121 that I read um, yesterday as well to the men all tie in together. Just the Lord revealing His hand to us one more time. We think of um, things that satisfy us. We're at the retreat and five-star accommodations, let me tell you. Yeah, yeah, I'm going there. Yes, I am this morning. Um, as it wasn't as last year we were kind of spoiled with the food and such, not so much with the sleeping. Sleeping, you're never spoiled when you get a group of men together, regardless if there's walls and floors in between. For some, I thought at one point there was an earthquake in the middle of the night. (laughs) Turned out it was someone breathing as they slept in a loud way. Actually, I thought it was a truck. But then it kept going and going. I said, no. No, it's not. Um... But as we were there, the the food wasn't that satisfying, but the teaching was satisfying to our souls. The fellowship was satisfying, and we were reminded of how we uh, seek for things in our life to satisfy us. And there are few things in life more satisfying than a job well done, when we have worked hard at something and see it through to completion. When a musician masters a difficult piece or an athlete achieves something of significance or a student finishes with high honors, which I can relate to none of those, by the way. But those are all wonderful achievements. They really are. Yet with such achievements, there is always room for improvement. Nothing is done perfectly, and the satisfaction obtained is temporary. It is fleeting, and it will not last. We were reminded of, uh, Brother Cody reminded us of Tom Tom Brady with all of his Super Bowl rings, and still he was left wanting. And I thought of Schwarzenegger, the best bodybuilder probably ever of all time, for years and years, and all he has achieved. And this day, as far as I know, he's lost. Sometimes we search for things that just cannot satisfy. Material things can, cannot satisfy eternal longings ever, I think brother, brother Cody said. Our busyness in life and our works of the flesh will never be complete. There will always be more to do. But with Jesus Christ our Lord, His work is completed. It is finished. The work given to Him by the Father is a completed work. And it is in this finished work that as we as Christians rest 
and are satisfied in. As Psalm 63, part of it I'll read before we go to John, reminds us in verse 1, O God, you are my God. I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you and my flesh yearns for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Now, can we say that this is true of us, each and every one of us? Verse 2, thus I have seen you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory. Someone said to me recently a quote, and I improved upon it, I think, and this isn't a joke, but Jesus rose from the dead for you. Can you even get out of the bed for him? As we come and worship the one true God. Verse 3, because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. I will lift up my hands to your name. My soul is satisfied as with marrow and fatness, and my mouth offers praises with joyful lips. Let that be our heart this morning, church, as we hear the word of God, as we go to the Lord's table today, as we go to John 17 at this time. And I will ask the Lord to help me one more time. Oh God, I stand before this people and I stand here before you, Lord, a weak man, just a piece of clay. I bring nothing to this pulpit, only what you have done in me. I am completely reliant upon you this morning to work in the hearts of men and to help me. Please do so at this time. In Jesus' name, amen. John 17. Remember three sections of this high priestly prayer. Jesus prays for himself. We see this in verse 1 through 6. And then Jesus prays for his disciples 7 through 19 and 20, and verse 20 through 26, Jesus prays for all believers, and we are included in that as well. Our text, our scriptures for us will be verse 4 and 5. Let's just begin in verse 1. Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh that to all who you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the works which you have given me to do. The chief end of man, again, is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. When did Jesus receive this work? that he was to do. Well, it was in eternity past. We looked at that briefly, the covenant of redemption. That is what theologians call this. The definition I gave you a a few weeks ago or a couple weeks ago for the covenant of redemption is as follows, a covenant or agreement within the Trinity where each member has a specific role in the salvation of, of people. We see this evidence 
of, of this, his pre-creation and this covenant of this verse, also elsewhere in the New Testament. The author of Hebrews closes the book of Hebrews in chapter 13, verse 20, saying, Now the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord. Consider that. The God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd. So when we look at this month and there's all kind of death all around us as this month is celebrated as such, and it seems like each year it just gets more and more uh, focused on the things of, of death, we know that God rose the great shepherd from the dead and he is a risen savior. This eternal covenant fulfilled on the cross is mentioned by Peter in chapter 1, verse 20 of 1 Peter. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world. This work received, our first point, this work received. And as Isaiah 53 tells us, I'll just read it for you. I'll be referencing that text a couple of times. In verse 10, but the Lord was pleased to crush him, crushing his son, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and he will prolong his days and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, speaking of Christ, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. And that is true for each and every one of us in here as a Christian this morning, as he bore our iniquities on that tree, on that cross, as he suffered for us. And this text in Isaiah, if my math is correct, is 700 years plus or minus before this text before us and crucifixion wasn't even invented yet. And this text in Isaiah describe the cross in terms of Christ's reward for fulfilling the mission of the salvation. Again, there are a people that God the Father has given to the Son. Louis Burkhoff summarizes the biblical data concerning this pre-creation pact. He says this, the Father required of the Son who appeared in this covenant as a surety and head of his people. And as the last Adam, that he should make amends for the sin of Adam and of those whom the Father has given him and should do what Adam failed to do by keeping the law and thus securing eternal life for all his spiritual people, all his people. The mission involved the following particulars, and I'll just give you these briefly and quickly. God the Son should take up a human nature by being born of a woman, thus experiencing all the weaknesses and infirmity of our nature except for sin. He, the Son of God, would place himself under the law, making himself liable for his own obedience and for the penalty of his people's sins. After securing forgiveness and eternal life for his people, he would send the Spirit to apply this salvation through the new birth into saving faith, through which his people would be saved by grace. For his part, God the Father pledged a number of blessings to the Son, the Father would give to the Son a people in reward for his accomplished work. The Father would prepare the Son a body for which would be fit a tabernacle for him. The Father would send the Holy Spirit to equip Jesus for his divine work in the flesh. And with the Son would send the Holy Spirit to regenerate and sanctify the people given to Christ. The Father would, upon the Son's mission accomplished, 
commit to him a power, all power, in heaven and on earth for the government of the world and of his church, and would finally reward him as mediator with the glory which he, as the Son of God, had with the Father before the world was. We see that in John 17, verse 5. And it is important for us to understand such theological terms and theology, but we must not forget that it is the love of God behind this, motivated by love. The work received. The work received. Secondly, the work accomplished. The work accomplished. Jesus reminded the disciples and others within earshot that he was on a mission by the Father. It was a divine rescue mission, again, to save sinners. The work that Jesus came to do was what Adam failed to do. The scripture refers to Jesus as the the second Adam or the last Adam. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says it is written, the first Adam, the first man Adam became a a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. The first man, Adam, is from earth, earthy. The second man, Jesus, is from heaven. Adam failed when he disobeyed God, and the fall of man came, as Paul says in Romans 5. For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. And Jesus did what no other could do. Obey God perfectly. Fully God, fully man. And it is less than 24 hours when Jesus said these words here in John 17. Less than 24 hours, Jesus would say it is finished as he gave up his life on the cross. He is saying here though, as he is praying, as, as the work is already accomplished. He lived a perfect life that we could never live. All that remained at this point for him was the cross that he would bear and the, the suffering around it. Richard Phillips says, his, by his perfect life lived on our behalf, Jesus provided the righteousness that his people lacked in themselves, but need in order to stand in the holy presence of God. Now Jesus would redeem us from the guilt of our sin. Are we resting? Are we satisfied in the finished work of Jesus Christ? Isaiah the prophet foretold it like this. In Isaiah 53, once again, He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon Him. And by His scourging we are healed. He poured out Himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yes, he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. Indeed, it is a mission that was accomplished by Christ. God was well pleased with the sacrifice of his son. As Jesus was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, as Romans says. This work accomplished this work we are to rest in as Christians. He was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It is a finished work, 
We had nothing to, to do to add to it. Yet we as Christians have work to do now that he has saved us. We have work that is to be accomplished. Nothing we can add to our salvation, but we have work to do now that we have been benefited from this salvation. God has given us life through Christ. He gives us eternal life. Then what? Then what? Then do whatever we please, whatever pleases our flesh. Why are we here? Are we not here to worship God, to praise his name, and to tell others about his name? Isn't that why we are still here on this earth? We have Christian service to accomplish, work to do for him, motivated to serve the living God by his love he has shown us, also motivated by obedience. Deuteronomy chapter 13, verse 4 You shall follow the Lord your God and fear him, and you shall keep his commandments, listen to his voice, serve him, and and cling to him. Motivated by obedience to the one who has saved us. Also motivated by gratitude to the one who has saved us. Considering the great things he has done for you, as it says in 1 Samuel chapter 12. Do you remember what it was like to not know Christ? Many of us here can remember. To be without that hope that only he can give. This is especially true for those of us who were saved later in life. I was saved when I was 27. I know and I remember what it was like to not walk with Christ. To not have that hope. To not be satisfied because I did not know Christ. All of us here who are Christians now ought to remember that time and what it was like and not dwell there, never dwelling there. Sometimes too often we're reminded of that who we used to be. As the enemy would bring these things to our mind or as our flesh would gravitate towards those things. But that's not who we are anymore, is it? Don Whitney in his book, Spiritual Disciplines of the Christian Life, says this. This is a book that we're studying, uh, several of us, uh, young adults, plus a few more. God has never done anything greater for anyone, nor could he do anything greater for you than what he has done in bringing you to himself. Suppose he put... $10 million into your bank account every morning for the rest of your life, but didn't save you. Suppose he gave you the most beautiful body in the face of anyone who ever lived, a body that never aged for a thousand years, but then at death shut you out of heaven and sent you to hell for eternity. What has God ever given anyone that could compare with the salvation he has given to you as a believer? Do you see that God could never do anything for you or give anything greater to you than the gift of himself? If we cannot be grateful servants of him who is everything and in whom we have everything, what would make us grateful? He has a great point, does he not? 
considering the work accomplished, considering what Christ has done for you and what he has done for me, we ought to serve the Lord with gladness, as Psalm 100 and verse 2 would tell us. Our motivation as well should be forgiveness, that we are forgiveness people, are forgiven people. And we should also likewise forgive others. We should not guilt others into serving or to doing things, for what would be the heart motivation there? I think we all can probably relate to someone guilting us into doing something or manipulating us into doing something, even cloaked in Christianity. It's nice when you can smell that thing a mile away. But that's not the motivation. Motivated by that we are forgiven people. We want to serve the Lord. When Isaiah realized his guilt had been forgiven, he said, here I am, send me. But it was, if you remember, a painful process for him to be able to say that. Also motivated by love. Paul tells us in Galatians 5, you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. We all have spiritual gifts given to us by the Lord. Not to find out in some written test, but given to us by the Lord to be used in serving the Lord in his church primarily and by way of evangelism to the lost as well. Let me say something to you, to some of you who have been here in this church, in this building, whichever it was, for a long time. Seniority, as far as time being in a church, does not define if you should serve in a certain capacity. If you're not gifted in a certain area, and you definitely shouldn't be in that area, you should not serve in that area. God's design and his specific gifting should determine that. If you have been here for years and years and years, but you continue to drop the ball time and time again in the area of your serving, perhaps someone who has been here for a year or two or more would do better and is more gifted in that area. And we ought to be standing with our gifts or standing with an area we serve in with open hands, baton ready to be passed to someone who is gifted. And we recognize that gifting. The elders ought to see that gifting and say, wow, he's been here for two and a half years, whatever it is. We see that gifting or we see her gifting. And we know their character. We all have been given at least one gift in order to serve the Lord, to serve his church. I would ask the question, Christian, member of this church, what are you doing? How are you serving? Some of you are. Amen. Some of you are not. Why not? How has he gifted you? Do you want to serve the Lord for his glory? Serve in capacities that go unnoticed. You know, there's folks who clean the church. 
There's folks who give meals and do things that are behind the scenes that no one knows about. And so it not ought to be to, to members of the church to look at someone and say, oh, they're not even serving when they don't know either, though. So we must be careful in that hand, too. We all have a limited amount of time, do we not? A limited amount of time. Anytime you drive by a cemetery, be reminded of that. Time is valuable. We can never regain lost time. I mentioned uh, some encouragements last sermon from Jonathan Edwards and the preciousness of time and the importance of redeeming it having to do with our use of time. I'm not going to go over all of those again, but I encourage you to read that or listen to it. Obviously, it won't be his voice, but it'll be someone else. The Preciousness of Time and the Importance of Redeeming It, I think it's called. But I will remind us of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, who you have from God, and that you are not your own? You have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. And part of that is serving the Lord and how he has gifted you, resting in the accomplished work of Jesus Christ. Also important to remember that everything you own belongs to God. And everything I own belongs to God. And we are stewards of what he has given us. And he can take things away just like that. He can take people away in our lives just like that. Happens every day. Oftentimes by surprise. Take things away from us. And that's a good thing once we go through that. It can be a good thing when God removes something from us. Because why? It draws us nearer to Christ. Painful process. But it reminds us that it's in him we rest. And it's into him we must look. And Psalm 24, verse 1 says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And Job 41, 11, Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine, says the Lord. He has given us money. He has given us the ability to work. All these resources are his. And with the work he has called each and every one of us to do, he has gifted each one of us. He has given us a certain amount of time on this earth. He has made us stewards of what he has given us. He has called us to be cheerful givers. He's called each of us to the Great Commission. Resting in the work accomplished, Christ. Jesus said he glorified the Father on earth. His entire life on earth. This is what he did, glorified God. The word glorify appears five times in some form in these first four verses. Jesus glorified God in his life, and he glorified God in his death. For it was on the cross where Jesus displayed God's love and grace for sinners, as well as God's perfect justice when he poured out his wrath upon his son and Christ became sin when he bore our sin. 
And as we know, the cross fulfilled prophecies of the Old Testament, which indeed also glorify God. Jesus glorified God by doing the work given to him by the Father. We, Christians, we are to glorify God by doing what work he has called us to do. Living lives of holiness and obedience and also the Great Commission. There was the work received, the Son received, and there is the work the Son accomplished. Then we see the Son glorified, the Son glorified. Jesus says, now Father, verse 5 of 17, now Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. There are a few takeaways from this, from this request of Christ to the Father. Again, think of this, he is praying to the Father here. And we get to listen in, we get to read what he said. We get to see his heart. This request from Christ shows once again the deity of Christ and the preexistence of Christ. This is something that was stated from the beginning of John's gospel. We remember in John 1, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And as Jesus says in chapter 8, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. And in 16, 28, I came forth from the Father, says the Lord, and I have come into the world, and I am leaving the world again and going to the Father. Secondly, there's also the glory Jesus enjoyed with the Father before the world was created. Hard for us to comprehend. Colossians 1, 16 through 18 says, For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. And also we know finally there is the glory that Christ laid aside during his life on earth. He temporarily laid this glory aside when he came to earth. This glory described in Psalm 104, you are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment. These, this is what he laid aside And as Philippians tells us, Paul says, He existed in the form of God. He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but instead he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance of man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow to those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. His glory that he set aside 
when he came to earth, as Philippians, as Paul tells us there, as Philippians says. This radiant glory of Christ that is shared with no other. Psalm 24 describes this. This glory he set aside, he would take up again when he ascended to heaven, to the right hand of the Father. Psalm 24 describes a king that would enter into Jerusalem, also describing the king of kings as he would enter into heaven. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is the king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. This is the Christ who set his glory aside as he came to this earth in the flesh and died for sinners like you and me. As Hebrews tells us, and he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. When he returned to heaven, he resumed to the glory he had. He was clothed with his former robes of radiant light. The final book of the Bible, Revelation, describes it for us as well. I'll read it for us as well in chapter 1. His head and his hair were like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in its strength. And John, when he saw him, He says, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his hand on me saying, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and the Hades. That is the king of glory who we serve. The king that came to save lost sinners. Our main takeaway of this work received by God, the work accomplished by Christ and the Son glorified. Our main takeaway is to be satisfied in Christ and in his finished work. Jesus has conquered the devil. He has conquered sin. He has conquered death. He has risen from the dead. The question for everyone in here this morning is, Has he conquered your heart? Is he ruling over you this morning? Is he your Savior? Is he your Lord? Have you bowed the knee to Jesus Christ? The doctrine of redemption, as Thomas Watson, Puritan says, The doctrine of redemption by Jesus Christ is a glorious doctrine. 
It is the marrow and quintessentious of the gospel in which all a Christian's comfort lies. Great was the work of creation, but greater the work of redemption. It cost more to redeem us than to make us. In the one, there was the speaking of a word. In the other, the shedding of blood. The creation was but the work of God's fingers. Redemption is the work of his arm. Are you redeemed this morning? All that are here. Have you repented of your sin and trusted in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation? Our brother will come and he will minister communion to us in a moment after I pray. Father, as we would prepare our hearts as we transition from the hearing of the word to the application, as we hear about the Lord's table, God, we pray that any in here who would not know Christ would come to Christ right now. Today is the day of salvation. Life is short. It is but a vapor. Lord, we pray you would save lost sinners. And for us who are children of yours, who are Christians. Let us rest in the finished work of Christ. Let us rest that knowing he holds us fast, that our foot will not slip ultimately. He will hold us. You hold us, O Lord. And that our hearts would be prepared for communion this morning. In Jesus' name.